we need to talk about the rule of law. A podcast by Verfassungsblock and Deutscher Anwaltsverein. We need to talk about legal education. As the last couple of episodes of our podcast have demonstrated, preserving the rule of law depends to a large quantity on people working in legal professions. What prosecutors, judges, attorneys, and to a large degree, people working in the executive branch have in common is a law degree. This means that we have to turn to legal education itself in order to find answers to the question how rule of law systems may remain or become resilient against authoritarian backsliding. Are current legal education systems in the EU equipped for this task? How are they affected by the turn to authoritarianism and illiberalism in a number of member states? And what are intrinsic shortcomings of academic and professional legal education? This is what we are going to discuss today with our distinguished guests, with Anna-Katharina Mangold, a professor of European law at the Europa University Flensburg, a member of the Education Committee of the German Women Lawyers Association, and an associate editor of Verfassungsblock covering anti-discrimination and gender issues. With Gabor Attila Tod, he writes primarily about the fields of human rights and constitutional theory with a current focus on the legal attributes of authoritarianism. He teaches law at the University of Debrecen and bioethics at the Semmelweis University in Budapest. With Attractor O'Regan, a solicitor and former barrister and head of Law Society of Ireland professional training and rule of law advisor to the Council of Bars and Law Societies of Europe. And with Jakob Urbanik, chair of Roman law and the law of the antiquity at Warsaw University. I'm Leonard Kokot, a law student myself and member of Verfassungsblock's editorial team. Hello, everyone. I'm very happy to have you. But I would like to start by asking you, Mr. Todd, to what extent legal education is a means of exercising influence over the judicial system from your perspective, and what is currently going on in this regard in Hungary? Thank you. I think in this discussion we can find many similarities between the restrictions in Poland and Hungary. What we are witnessing in Hungary and beyond now is a return of autocratic rule over the higher education and legal education especially. Interestingly, it is a relatively new idea that law schools can and should be places of critical thinking and that legal education can give support to democratic and constitutional change. In the predecessors of European universities, medieval students could develop intellectual capacities in liberal arts courses from rhetoric to arithmetic, but law faculties were different. They offered a system of dogmatics. Therefore, legal studies were closer to studies of theology than to critical thinking. So in a regional comparison, Western European universities were among the institutions that could achieve freedom and independence from the state, the ruler or, or the church. In contrast, before the 1989 uh, democratic change, Eastern European law faculties and universities in general could hardly ever escape from autocratic control. So therefore, in Hungary and elsewhere in the region, academic freedom and uh, legal education has only a modest tradition. 
So the question is, what has happened since the new autocratic constitutional system was created in Hungary, and what kind of general overview can we can we offer? I think uh, the most important thing is that the government has strengthened political control, and the universities and the law schools turned into obedient executors of the of the government's intentions. Some of the heads of the universities have been appointed by the head of state without the support of the Senate, the self-governing bodies of the universities. The government controls the institution's operation by appointing financial chancellors. Uh, the regime distrusts universities and intellectuals. And uh, in Hungary, ideological attacks on researchers and legal scholars and institutions repeatedly appear in the government-affiliated media. A very important phenomenon is that the government closes or limits the activities of educational institutions deemed dangerous. The Central European University, widely considered the flagship of open society, was targeted by a law and compelled by the government to, be, to move its center of operation abroad to, to Vienna. That was the first politically motivated removal of a university from a European of a university from a European country since the Second World War. At the same time, the government has established parallel institutions. A good example can be that the so-called Rule of Law Institute, which is planned to set up by Hungary and Poland to counter critics, uh, in order to train civil servants to serve the government. The National University of Public Service was established in Hungary without an accreditation process. So in my view, the measures, these measures aim to ensure the hegemony of the official interpretation of law, history and culture. And this is why I think that we are witnessing a return of autocratic rule over the legal education. It especially struck me uh, that you spoke of um, the universities becoming and law schools becoming obedient executors um, of Uh, what the political leadership wants. And I think we are going to come back to this um, later in this episode. So, Professor Urbanik, legal in education in Poland must be challenging too, since um, the PiS government has attacked the legal system in manifold ways. What are the recent developments there? I, um, um, I think that there is a, 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 a still a large difference between what's happening in Hungary And uh, what's the situation in Poland? Uh, uh, and and uh, what we see in Hungary, I think, is is uh, <laughs> a kind of a reminder that we may go this way, but we still are not there. I must uh, um, underline. So uh, first of all, uh, there is a very strong uh, uh, constitutional protection of uh, academic freedom and uh, the um, autonomy of the institutions of higher education. We still uh, have, um, and of course, what I'm saying is 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 the dogmatic <laughs> pattern, as it were, and, and not necessarily the practice. And, and there will be differences between large and smaller universities, the first class universities, and say provincial universities, as it were. Um, uh, but uh, at least with the large universities, uh, they have um, independently elected uh, leadership. Um, um, after the recent reform of the higher education and science in 2018, uh, the, 
internal autonomy of the university may have been diminished, but it's still not um, directly put under the governmental influence. Um, what we have is also a very decentralized model of legal education. So with the first class universities, those that have been evaluated as A and A plus, and I think B plus as well, um, um, the um, um, teaching bodies have got freedom to adopt their own uh, syllabi and curricula. Uh, obviously, we would want them to be consistent uh, with the general pattern of the Indonesia education in, in, in the country. Uh, so preparations of, of some of our alumni for the bar exam or judges exam, uh, what not. Uh, but still, uh, uh, the exact uh, uh, setting of the syllabus uh, depends on the faculty body and the university. It, it needs to be approved by the Senate at the end of the day, but uh, obviously it's devised by the by the by the faculty. So uh, you'll find uh, obviously similarities uh, between various faculties of law in Poland, uh, but there will be also striking differences. Uh, for instance, how much of the practical input is given to the students, how uh, um, 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 much impact is put on, uh, how much focus is, is put on the uh, uh, theoretical subjects, ethics, uh, and and so on. And uh, there is also a well-established tradition of uh, of freedom uh, of um, academic teaching. So um, I don't think I'd be uh, curtailed, or I should not be curtailed. Uh, by uh, uh, my university authority, be it the dean, be it the rector, for whatever I say within my lecture, as long as I respect my students' dignity and, and dignity of the others. Having said that, uh, we must observe the external, unofficial influence that is definitely uh, designed to cause chilling effect. And uh, especially uh, after the recent uh, uh, developments in Poland uh, regarding the this, uh, um, however we can phrase it, uh, it's not a judgment, the non-judgment of the non-constitutional courts regarding the law on abortion of, of the last week and, and, and millennial protests on the streets, uh, which have been to a certain extent supported by the universities, um, for instance, the rectors of the universities, of many Polish universities, uh, decreed a free day, uh, well, last Wednesdays, for the students who would want to participate uh, in the strike. Uh, they were immediately admonitioned by the new Minister of uh, Education and Science that uh, such uh, acts were contrary to the law and thus may cause cutting down of financial support to the universities. Now, this is a clear threat, uh, but I'm not quite sure what uh, uh, um, actually bothers me more, whether this threat, obviously very challenging and completely out of the place, or the fact that the minister should know that he has no power within the existing legal system to do what he promises to do. <laughs> uh, so the ministry obviously subsidizes the universities, but he was speaking about cutting down uh, uh, um, research money that is largely channeled by the National Center of Research, which is an institution still independent from the ministry. Of course, they are various links and appointments, but uh, um, still. So, so we have a situation in which uh, 
uh, I would uh, put it very boldly, the minister has no idea of his own uh, department. Uh, he is a politician, a very controversial one, and he was put in, in charge because he is such a person. And uh, uh, the main uh, attempts so far um, have been done in this very chilling effect. So far, this last week story uh, has proven to the contrary, uh, if at all, it has caused uh, the rather uh, uh, decisive response from the academics, from students, and from the governing bodies of the of the universities. But I say, at least on paper, the universities are largely independent. Another problem, uh, but that probably we will discuss later at, at certain point, is the uh, and that we share with Hungary, obviously, is the. Uh, uh, impact of the uh, public opinion on whatever we do. Uh, so like uh, um, uh, certain kind of magazines in Hungary have been publishing the uh, uh, so-called uh, um, uh, prescription lists of, of shame of, of scientists, also we are targeted by right-wing uh, uh, um, journals or uh, uh, magazines or, or internet portals. Uh, so, uh, just to give you a very short example of, of what happened, when in June at my uh, lecture I uh, referred to the uh, non-constitutional situation at the Supreme Court, uh, uh, three days later I was name-shamed by a few right-wing portals as LD, LGBT lefty activist who undermines the power of the Supreme Court to his students. Uh, so, of course, it's not that I was as threatened by that. It's not that I was I was uh, chilled in any way, uh, but they would want to do that. They would want to channel hatred towards some people who would take a, a, a large stance, and, and that's been happening a lot. So not the government uh, in an institutional way, but the government and the so-called public opinion with threats. Professor Mangold, what, what struck me as interesting from a German perspective is uh, that Mr. Urbanik said that um, the, the syllabus is up to the law schools uh, in Poland to a certain um, extent. This is quite different from Germany, am I right? Um, Germany has a rather, rather complex way of educating its lawyers in the making. Could you tell us a little about that? Certainly, thank you. Um, in Germany, obviously, we are not facing anything that is even close to that which you, uh, Professor Todt and Professor Obernik, are facing in, in, uh, currently. But um, it is interesting to see how things are developing in Germany. Uh, bear in mind that Germany was founded after the Second World War with the um, Nazi regime and its atrocities in mind. And there was a common understanding that the Weimar Republic had led to that approach. And indeed, that the so-called positivist understanding, reading of the law, was one factor that contributed greatly to um, what happened uh, in the Nazi uh, time. So after the Second World War, indeed, the states wanted to have resilient lawyers, but they did not change at all the setup of legal pedagogy or legal education. So to this day, we are still learning for a so-called state exam that trains lawyers, uh, legal students for to become judges. 
But obviously with that state exam and the second state exam that is more practically oriented, um, lawyers can become attorneys or barristers. There is no such distinction in German law. And um, still the idea is that all law students are trained to become judges. So they should be resilient and they should be independent thinkers, being able to judge indeed cases. But what happens is that uh, law students need to know all there is to know about the law in just two weeks when they write their, their um, written exams. And this leads to an absolute overburdening of law students today because now we are members of the EU. We are in within um, international law bound by treaties. So there is so much more than there was at the beginning of the German Republic. And still we aim at this idea of training lawyers to know everything about the law. And this leads, I'm sorry to say, to a sort of black pedagogy that cannot be helped even by the most uh, benevolent teachers that try to alleviate what law students are facing. It's just too much. And how do these exams work? Law students need to... Um, solve a case, to judge a case, basically, write a legal opinion on a case. And there is something like a um, a solution to the case, an ideal solution to the case. So students are working towards that ideal solution, or rather they're working against it. Because when you're writing an exam, you cannot possibly have all the resources that are necessary to actually solve a case. Now, what happens psychologically is that students will always and inevitably feel uh, incompetent and they will feel not perfect, not good at what they are doing because for everything they don't know compared to the ideal solution, they, there will be points detracted. Uh, and this leads, and I have seen this many, many, many times, this leads to a destruction, I would say, of the psyche of um, law students. And to some extent, it is a sort of breaking in of students. As you would do with horses, you break in law students to make them, to render them obedient lawyers. And this is something I find particularly troublesome. The high focus on doctrine and dogmatic thinking as opposed to critical thinking that is prescribed that by the very setup of the law, law um, program, of the law syllabus, of the curriculum. And this not intended, I want to emphasize it, it is not intended by law professors such as myself. It is just an inevitable consequence of the setup of the legal program. Uh, leads to um, an, in, a, a dependence of thinking, I would say, because students always try to find the correct, the ideal solution, and that actually hinders them to develop their own potential for critical thinking. Now, if we talk about um, academic freedom and free academic teaching, there is no question that this is constitutionally protected in Germany, um, and there is no threat, I have seen no threat whatsoever by state authorities. 
However, as uh, Professor Obernek said, there is a distinction between what the law says and what happens in practice. Because I am working in, um, as you said, Leonard Kokot uh, in the beginning, um, I'm working in the areas of legal gender studies and anti-discrimination law. And that obviously makes me an ideal target for right-wing parties. And um, this actually happens. So um, I and my colleagues who work in this area, we get threats from, by email that we actually have to forward to the police um, after having high-profile hearings. Um, and indeed, at one time, I was teaching at the University of uh, Constance, and the right-wing party there that is highly anti-Semitic in Baden-Württemberg, in the state of Baden-Württemberg, they set up a web page where students and uh, pupils indeed could denunciate professors and teachers. So, and it was there as a threat. So I said in the very beginning, now let's this get off our system. If you want to denunciate me, then you just do it because I will say things against right-wing parties. But um, this is something that certainly makes it also, and I know this from female colleagues, we have very few women professors, uh, female professors in Germany in law, um, but this makes it really hard for us to, to be there as individual persons and to speak up because there is so much backlash that, well, yeah, it is not directed by the state, but these right-wing parties are now in nearly all of the um, German parliaments and even in the Bundestag. Mrs. O'Regan, um, Professor Mango just said that the German legal education system does aim to produce critical independent thinkers, but at the same time it puts an emphasis on them becoming judges. This way of educating lawyers to be servants of the state above all else, how does that look like to you from a common law and a rule of law perspective? Um, who should do professional training, the state or law societies? And how are things um, in Ireland? Well, I find it very interesting to hear my colleagues speak about the challenges, interesting and sad, the challenges that they're facing in terms of their educational systems and their legal educational systems, because we are very fortunate in Ireland. Um, the right to education is guaranteed by our constitution. We have a very independent elected leadership in all our universities, institutes of technologies. We have freedom to design syllabi, and that's done by faculty bodies. And there's total freedom of academic teaching. Um, for a lawyer, it is a very, very long road which will usually start by someone leaving school and achieving a three-year graduate law degree in one of our universities or private colleges. They then have to sit um, entrance exams. We have two branches of lawyers, as you know. We have barristers and we have solicitors. And from the professional education perspective, they're two entirely different routes. So a law student, having completed a law degree, will decide whether they want to become a barrister or a solicitor. 
if they want to become a solicitor, they will sit the entrance examinations for the Law Society. For a barrister, they'll sit the entrance exams for the King's Inns. They will then undergo, if you're a solicitor, you will have to do a professional practice course one, which is a six-month course. You will have to successfully complete all the examinations in that um, course. You will then have to have secured a traineeship with a law firm in Ireland where you would do um, learning by doing your trainee solicitor for a 24-month period. And during that 24-month period, you would also have to sit a three-month professional practice course where you have to do mandatory subjects and there are elective subjects which you can pick. At the end of the PPC2, you then have to successfully complete all those exams. And then on completion of your traineeship, you can then be admitted to the role of solicitor. And that route is very similar for a barrister. If you take three years post law graduate degree, it probably take you maybe six months more before you've sat all the entrance exams. And then if you take the 24 month traineeship period and the six month professional practice course one period, you're really talking about three to four years postgraduate degree qualifying as a solicitor or a barrister. But that does not entitle you to be a judge. There is no judicial training in our universities. The professional education of solicitors and barristers is statutorily um, directed to our bar associations and law societies. So the law society trains solicitors, the King's Inns train barristers. Solicitors teach young trainee solicitors how to become solicitors on the courses in the Law Society. Barristers teach trainee barristers how to become barristers. And then solicitors do a traineeship and then barristers, we call them baby barristers, I was one once, have to do what is called deviling. So you shadow another barrister and they will give you different cases that you bring before the court. If you want to become a judge, it's an entirely different situation. It is assumed that you need to be a barrister or a solicitor first, that you've had the practice and experience of practicing either as a barrister or a solicitor. And the process of applying for a judge at the moment is you would apply through a st independent state system um, with your CV. It's a very, very detailed process. There is um, the judicial, we call it JAB, the Judicial Appointments Body, which comprises of representatives from the Law Society, the Bar of Ireland, and all of the presidents of the various courts. They make recommendations to the government, and the government ultimately decides then who is appointed on the recommendations of the Judicial Appointments Body. At the moment, that is under review. In 2019, we established an independent judicial council. So that process of appointment of judges is going to change. So I find it quite interesting 
that somebody would go to college to study to become a judge without having had years of practical experience practicing as a lawyer. I just think it's extremely strange. But then again, you have a different, you have a, a civil law system and maybe it works fine for all of your countries working in the manner in which you do. Yeah, so a very, a very different way of, of educating lawyers and um, of selecting judges indeed. Um, Mr. Todd, you have something to say uh, about that? Thank you. I think uh, these comparisons are very helpful for us. And in this comparison, uh, it is clear that uh, in, in Poland, uh, the civil society or the academic freedom is stronger than in Hungary in, in traditionally. On the other hand, Hungary is not similar to Turkey, where professors, intellectuals, journalists are behind bars. Uh, by the way, it, I find it alarming that in Poland there has been a criminal procedure against the law professor Wojciech Sadurski because of his views. So the most uh, crucial point here is that uh, uh, teaching and researching uh, are not free. So in Hungary, uh, among the, the lecturers of law faculties, we find many, many supporters and apologists for the autocratic transformation and hardline governmental uh, policies. Uh, but the majority of legal scholars are, I think, uh, mitläufer, who are not involved politically, who are not enthusiastic supporters of the regime. Still, they accept the new standards uncritically and are prepared to compromise on constitutional and, and human rights values. For a midlifer, it is not a huge difficulty to change the topic of his, his or her research project so as to gain uh, a research grant. Grants and positions are distributed to those projects and individuals who don't express dangerous critical views. For a midlifer, it is not a huge difficulty to restrain himself from expressing critical views in lectures and seminars. So let me give you an example. When law students in Budapest voiced their solidarity with the students of the University of Theatre and Cinematic Arts, who are at an independence war against the government, the dean of the law faculty in Budapest ordered to remove the law students' manifesto for university freedom. Uh, and I think all of those who are truly critical of the Hungarian regime either have been forced to leave the country or the academic life or have been marginalized. Uh, there are, of course, independent research units and sovereign minds and free intellectuals who will never involve themselves to indoctrinating law students. On the contrary, they continue to be place, places and source of critical thinking. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, they are on the periphery of legal education right now. Thank you, Mr. Mr. Todd, especially for the insight into how um, people in academic professions themselves behave in, in such a situation. Um, Mr. Obernick, I, just one clarification. Uh, 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 Professor Sadowski uh, has been uh, indeed prosecuted, but it's a private uh, prosecution and not a state prosecution. And uh, uh, there is this this famous slash infamous article of the criminal code that uh, 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 out of a private prosecutions 
can uh, uh, go against uh, a defamation uh, and libel, so to say. So it, it's rather complex because we, we use that. I mean, I'm not a very fun, a great fan of this article, but it's actually used by the so-called democratic side as well to 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 to, to curb down uh, certain excesses of freedom of speech uh, of the um, uh, governmental officials. Uh, uh, back to, to, to the main uh, uh, point. So, again, I, I see a great difference uh, between uh, uh, Hungary and Poland here. Uh, the large, important law faculties have undertaken over the last six years, five years now, but especially in, in, in the last two years, um, uh, very strong declarations uh, um, showing what right was, what the legal standing wars, uh, what the Supreme Court position uh, was, what uh, the trouble about the Constitutional Court was, and so on and so forth. Uh, they are usually uh, taken by a vote. Uh, sometimes these votes are by a very large majority, sometimes less. Obviously, our colleagues are also involved in the reform of the uh, uh, um, administration of justice that has been going on for the last five years. In my own faculty council, uh, there are seven Supreme Court justices or whose election is, is dubious. Uh, so uh, just like it happened uh, two weeks ago with an um, attempt to start a disciplinary proceeding against one of the justices from the court in Krakow, uh, my faculty took a very strong stand and two of those so-called justices then wrote letters. They did not appear at the council, funnily enough, but they they, they just wrote open letters uh, that it was premature and uh, they could not uh, vote on anything like that's being uh, uh, justices of the court. Um, I think uh, on the level of teaching, because this is important, uh, it really depends on the teacher. So whether or not we say things uh, to our students, whether we, or not we engage uh, in a debate. I teach Roman law, so it's, it's kind of difficult to engage uh, uh, in the uh, modern uh, legal debate uh, in my lecture. However, since I'm a law historian, I always have the pretext of saying that, look, this is living history of, of law. Uh, uh, this is, uh, say, uh, uh, the dream of Carl Schmitt happening. So let's talk about Carl Schmitt a little bit. And, and um, what prevents me from saying certain things to a certain extent is my self-censure, but not in the sense that I would be afraid of anything. It's rather, and I think this is an idea that we share a lot on the kind of democratic side of the discourse, is that we cannot, being in the position of power, uh, uh, impose any of our ideas on our students, even if these ideas are right, <laughs> uh, if you know what I mean. So, so, so it's this symbolic violence, me from the chair, uh, saying certain truths, and the students are simply not in, uh, uh, in position to uh, contradict me. Uh, they would be afraid of, of, of myself, of my authority. So I, I limit myself. To a certain extent, my right-wing colleagues do not have that kind of reservation, <laughs> and I think this is—I've got this dilemma. I, I really don't know. Uh, sometimes, I mean, for for a very long time, I'd be saying certain things uh, uh, which I, I I'd take as not political views, but uh, certain um, um, uh, well-established uh, uh, points of the on on the 
current situation of the court reform, of the rule of law situation in Poland, uh, and so on. But I always have uh, this little uh, limit in my head. Am I not imposing a little bit too much on my students, whether or not they should not engage themselves? And then I can come to, to, to them uh, 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 with, 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 my, with my notice. Obviously, the system, and I'll, I'll finish with that, has got a lot of incentives for the Mietläufer, as, as Professor Todd has very nicely <laughs> defined, or for eager to, to even students. Uh, the Ministry of Justice offers uh, very nice apprenticeships, whether in the Ministry or the Institute of, of Justice, or this uh, uh, so-called Justice Fund that, that sponsor little research projects and employ people. Uh, doing research. So lately, this Institute of, of, of Justice, for instance, has, um, uh, and the Justice Fund, they have sponsored an initiative to create uh, kind of legal clinics to help people whose uh, 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 freedom of religion may be challenged by the LGBTQ activism. Uh, and uh, this is, you know, it's not that it goes in our face. It's not, it's a regulation. Uh, but, you know, there, there is a carrot there. There is a carrot there. And obviously, uh, this, this carrot is uh, is well enhanced by the future uh, possibility of employment and, and participation in, in uh, less or not official official bodies. Uh, Professor Mando uh, spoke about gender studies. This is yet another something uh, that the new minister had very clearly said uh, we should uh, get rid of gender studies and this gender ideology out of our universities. Uh, he still doesn't know that he cannot do that, theoretically. But nonetheless, he'll say these things uh, because he wants to provoke. Uh, thank you. Um, Professor Mangold, uh, directly on that. Thank you. I have indeed something to add because I am a legal historian myself. Um, and what strikes me is are the similarities to what happened in the Weimar Republic and in the early uh, Nazi era. So I have been working on a couple of law professors of these times on the on their biographies and what happened. And indeed, everything that you are describing, um, the self censorship, that's where it starts where you are really thinking, and it is from a human point of view, it is so understandable that, of course, you wouldn't want to put your family at risk. You wouldn't want to put the fruit of your life's labor at risk by being in a, uh, well, contradictory position to those in power. And there were those that felt that tension so much that they actually fled the country. And we can see that I have a couple of colleagues from CEU who had to transfer to Vienna, which of course means that their whole life is uh, turned upside down. And um, it is so horrible for me as a German law professor to see this happening in the middle of Europe just now. And it is even within the boundaries of the European Union that was indeed founded to just prevent something like this from happening ever again. So this is this is really um, what I want to point out. I, I don't think we are there yet, but in the beginning of the Nazi regime, they were not there yet. They made it up as they went. 
And what I find interesting or, well, interesting, what we can see if we look into how these authoritarian dictatorships um, develop is that they turn against those in vulnerable positions. So they turn against the LGBT community and not surprisingly, they also turn against women because women are, are still in a very, um, well, in a dominated position in society in general. And that's what troubles me. And here, I think I might have a slightly different opinion from what you said, Professor Obanek, because you were, were, you were thinking about the symbolic violence that you possibly exert on students when you talk critically about what is happening from the chair, so to speak. And I have the same trouble, but I think there is just no point in evading that. And why is that? Because I think somebody needs to talk against those in power and needs to talk counter-hegemonic against the hegemony. And I, as a woman, one of the very few women, we have less than 12% female professors in law in Germany. And that's Germany, right? So I can, I'm standing out wherever I go. I cannot help it. So I, I, would I not highlight that? Students would still see it because I'm probably the only female professor they have in a law school. And I'd rather address it address this and make it something that can be discussed in class, where I'm there to discuss the questions with the students. I'd rather have it in the open than struggle with this very, uh, yeah, I, I absolutely know because I have been, I, when I taught constitutional history in this, uh, I, I mentioned the uh, University of Constance, it was striking me, it was four years ago, so basically Trump was elected at that time, and I was teaching U.S. constitutional history as part of that course, so I explained everything by drawing lines to what was happening now under the Trump regime, I'd say, um, and this is something that for me as a legal historian is just inevitable to see what is happening. And I can see also that history only is interesting for students if we teach it uh, with, we cannot evade our contemporary perspective when we look at history, obviously. But, but really this talking against power is part, I think, of academic freedom. That's why it's there in the constitution. In a German constitution, in a basic law, it has been enshrined as a result from the experiences in the Weimar Republic, indeed. And so I, I totally feel your, your struggles because I'm experiencing them as well. But I think if I, as one of the few law professors that is female, one of the few that works in gender studies, if I do not speak up, students will never hear anything about that. I, I think I've, I've grown up to, to have the same standing now on that, but there's always this, this feeling behind. But I also want to say, uh, and again, I think it's best showing by cases. Uh, so last week, our rec new rector um, um, uh, sent a letter to the academic community 
describing the situation and saying that diversity would always be a place uh, for debate. But uh, in a very nice, I would say, symbolic way, he also decreed that the gates of the university would be opened until late on the demonstration date, because the university, as we used to have in the medieval times, has got legal autonomy. Uh, police cannot enter the university, so thus university would become a shelter for the demonstrators. It wasn't said openly, but it was obvious. Uh, and... I think, again, uh, uh, Professor Mangold uh, referred a lot to the Weimar Republic, and and uh, we also, of course, we have the experience of the 50 years until 89, but we also have very positive experience, or glorified experience, so to say, of the student strikes of 68 um, um, 80 and 88, uh, where uh, even back then, even within the regime, the universities at least tried to defend their autonomy and tried to defend their students. So uh, I have rather high hopes for, 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 for that in, in, in that sense, that there is this feeling of resistance that will persist. Another thing is the students, whether they are uh, rather attracted by the um, uh, whatever rewards can be given by the system, or whether they stay faithful to the ideas and critical thinking. And... Uh, Obviously, that, that is not, not a good answer to that, uh, but at least, again, in Warsaw, seen from the biggest law faculty in Poland, biggest university, um, with uh, actually half of the faculty are women, uh, uh, Polish legal faculties are very feminized, uh, I'd say. Also, the legal profession in general, uh, half of, of Polish judges are women. Uh, it, it, the, 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 um, the number lessens uh, obviously with uh, higher ranking judges, but it's still very visible female presence uh, within the, the administration of justice. So uh, uh, I, I must say that one of the biggest, if not the biggest debating club now of students at my faculty at the university is a students debating club, uh, which is devoted to human rights and constitutional rights. Uh, they are 80 plus members, and they have no reward in their CVs for participating in that uh, kind of uh, debate. Uh, and they, especially under the pandemic, they've been going on with uh, webinars, uh, posting on Instagram, uh, uh, with uh, uh, commentaries on the current situation, legal commentaries. Last Thursday, they organized with my two colleagues a webinar on the right to demonstrate and the rights of detained people. <laughs> Uh, uh, and it was identified by, I think, 300 people online at the same time. And that's an entirely student's initiative. In this crisis, there is a positive side. People get aware about their constitutional rights. People get aware about rule of law. LGBTQ rights have become part of the mainstream. Women's rights have become, again, very visible. Even if under the pressure, uh, students need to take stand as well. I mean, it polarizes the situation for better and for worse. So uh, I think it's a great law lesson for all of us and for our students too. What is happening? Thank you once again, um, and Mrs. Oregon. Maybe I can connect this with uh, with something I wanted to ask you. Um, anyways, which is as a member of the profession that probably the mediate the most between individuals and the legal system um, what does educating the non-loyally public about what the rule of law means 
take um, who is up to that task. Thank you very much. I was just reflecting when I was listening to what's happening in Hungary and Poland and Germany, how important this podcast is. Let's talk about the rule of law. You know, in our own countries, we know what's going on. We know what's happening. We read about what's happening in relation to LGBTI um, rights or lack of rights. We read about um, discrimination against minorities, against um, women. Um, but to have an opportunity to get that out in countries where there may not be media pluralism is really important. And I say that because I remember when things were happening in Turkey during the Gezi Park protests. I was actually there working with many lawyers in Istanbul, and I was absolutely appalled reading the world media that referred to the Gezi Park protests as riots and called many of the Turkish people um, they said there were thugs. They, it was completely fake news, as um, I won't quote Trump, um, but it was fake news because I had never, ever seen such peaceful protest, such peaceful protesters in my life. The respect and the dignity and the only people who didn't have respect were, in fact, the state authorities and the way they behaved. But it, it shows why something like this is crucial and needs to happen throughout all of Europe, because what's happening throughout Europe is history is repeating itself. And slowly but surely, COVID-19 has been abused as a means of reducing the rights of minorities, vulnerable sectors of society. And we need to keep talking about the rule of law more and sharing across member states what is the real experience, not the fake news? So I just wanted to share that because I think it's very important um, that these forums are kept going and we keep talking about the reality of the situation in our countries. To answer your question in relation to um, how do we educate the public about the rule of law? I know from an Irish law perspective, the non-governmental organisations, the citizens' rights um, um, organisation in Ireland, there's umbrella organisations for the LGBTI, um, for the Irish Women Lawyers, for example, for women lawyers. Um, there's a lot of NGO bodies in our country that would play a massive role in terms of educating the public in terms of policy advocacy, to have laws changed in our country, to improve um, the situation for those who don't have the same access as others. There has been a substantial change in the curriculum in both our primary and post-primary schools in educating children at a very young age, right up into secondary school age, on um, their rights, on their remedies, on appropriate respect for each other, equality of treatment for everybody. So in our country, it has become part of the curriculum from once a child starts school. And that's the best place to start. Um, for those who weren't as fortunate to have been part of that curriculum, 
you do have the citizen information services, you do have a lot of NGO bodies, local community um, organizations, and even the Law Society, we work, we do legal clinics um, with our students where they will work with civil society on different law projects, which is again creating um, and educating the public, the non-lawyers about their rights and equality and everything else that is necessary to give people an understanding of the rule of law. Thank you, Mrs. O'Regan. Um, we are running a little out of time. So before we get into a final round of uh, questions, um, Mr. Talk, please. Thank you. As a, a teaching experience in a non-democratic country, uh, let me mention here a paradox. So if you are a lecturer at a law faculty and you teach constitutional law and rule of law, what and how can you teach uh, in an autocratic country? How can you introduce the Hungarian constitutional system? If you express your true beliefs that the constitutional system is normatively illegitimate, and may lead to a dictatorship, most of your students who know almost nothing about that will understand nothing about your tirade and think you are crazy. If you limit yourself to a description of the system, a description of the constitutional system with slight critical remarks, you make it worse. Uh, you will be a part of the legitimate system. So uh, what can I recommend to, to colleagues uh, in such a situation? What I recommend to myself. So first, choose general theoretical and comparative topics uh, for teaching. Different theories of law or comparative constitutionalism offer a better outlook for critical thinking and teaching. Second, uh, when introducing the Hungarian constitutional system, use as many comparative case materials as possible. You can compare the current governmental structure to the previous democratic system. You can show the dissimilarities between the law in books and law in action. And third, you can use this exceptional time for improving yourself. There are new teaching and research fields to be discovered. This is one of the reasons why I started to teach bioethics, medicinische ethics, to, to German-speaking students. Thank you. What we've touched a lot upon is uh, critical thinking that we want to achieve for uh, our students. And my final question for all of you that encompasses what we have talked about in this episode so, so far would be, I would like to know how sure you are that a lawyer who completes his or her legal education at this moment in your country is equipped with the tools and the critical thinking to withstand a government that is working to erode the rule of law. Mrs. O'Regan, would you like to start? That's actually a tough question because our students are not subjected to the horrendous challenges that are facing so many other law students across Europe. And we are fortunate in that we are educating them in a very free democratic country. How well equipped are they? I would like to think that they are well equipped. But to be realistic about that, because they've never had to deal with that because they've never been brought up 
to have to deal with the type of challenges that my colleagues here are discussing. I can only be optimistic that the skills that they have been taught, and we do teach critical thinking, objective thinking, unconscious bias, um, diversity and inclusion. And I would hope that the training we've given them in that and all of the skills training would more than adequately equip them. But because they've never been exposed to the challenges that are facing many of our colleagues across Europe, I could not be 100% certain. Professor Mangold? I agree with uh, my colleague, or Ms. O'Regan, that this is a very tough question because there's only so much we as law professors can contribute to what students learn and what they experience after having trained as lawyers is and how they feel about the setup of the nation, of the governmental rules, of the structures. What I would like to think is that they have an understanding that human rights are about the protection of minorities, those in vulnerable positions, those that are not part of the mainstream, and that it is a quintessential task of lawyers to protect those that go against the mainstream, that are different. But having said that, this is my hope. Currently, I would think in Germany, it very much depends on the particular faculty whether these non-hegemonic perspectives are actually displayed in the uh, in the collegium of the professors. And this is something we haven't touched upon, the diversity of the law professors. And here I would say that Germany is to... Um, I have been trained in the UK, and it is really astonishing to see how impenetrable the German legal academia is it is so white it is so male and it is so mainstream and i think that makes it difficult for law students to actually grasp the importance of protecting those that stick out that are different from the mainstream and i think that is what really the rule of law is about to protect those that are vulnerable yeah, so for Germany, I'm I'm also hoping, of course, but I'm also a bit doubting the possibilities within the system to display diversity. Mr. Todd. I think under a non-democratic government, law students and math uh, are not and cannot be equipped with the tools we need to stand up to an autocratic government. It is not possible and not necessary. In 1989, the determining year of the democratic transformation, they were not the law students who were the engines of the change. At that time, law schools offered very little to equip law students with constitutional ideas and the capacities of critical thinking. Yet, uh, there, were there were law students in the democratic opposition movement who had learned a lot uh, at unofficial free universities and read the secretly distributed works of thinkers under censorship. They read the works 
on, on human rights and the rule of law and constitutionalism. And that time, those law students were aware of the law of that uh, of that law courts and and constitution are indispensable to regain democracy and and the rule of law. And I hope that this pattern can repeat itself. Thank you very much, and Mr. Obanik. Uh, I, I I don't think I have much to to, to add. What what my colleagues have expressed, it's a very difficult task. Uh, but uh, I hope uh, that this critical thinking, at least to a certain extent, is awakened also by the hardship, uh, also by the uh, by the difficult situation in which we are. And again, the happenings of the last week in Poland uh, are quite a proof of, of, of that, I, I, I say. I've already mentioned this debating club of, of Paul Nekuczarska Reinschmidt. Uh, um, they, they, they do... An amazing job. They, they organize kind of Oxford debates uh, um, um, at the university. They always try to invite uh, people who would not have the exact same opinion on that, even if that opinion would be the most democratic one or the most pro-rule of law one. Um, so uh, that shows, and these meetings are quite numerously attended. So if I may speak for, for, for my faculty, for my university, I'd say that um, at least some of them are ready for, for, for that. Whether or not the legal education uh, as such but, sir, uh, prepares you for legal thinking, um, that uh, remains to be to, to, to be really seen. And, and uh, I would only subscribe to what, what Professor Mangold had said about shaping the students at the end of the day to pass the bar exam or to pass the entry exam to the bar or to the to the, the school of judges and, and, and so on. Um, so it depends on the students and it depends on the teachers as well. Um, and uh, so there is no very <laughs> nice and, and quick answer, but I do have, have some hopes because of the hardship. So thank you very much to all of you. Uh, this has been a great episode of We Need to Talk About the Rule of Law. Our seventh episode, We Need to Talk About Legal Education. And I think we have learned troublesome as well as hope-inducing things about the state of legal education and academic freedom in the European Union. Um, we appreciate our listeners' feedback using the hashtag LawRules on Twitter or Instagram or on Verfassungsblog. If you have any questions, please post them to us there. And we are looking to next week's episode about the penal system. <laughs>